Well, amen. We are in week four of our series, All I Want for Christmas. And let me just say, uh, as a word of encouragement, thank you to those that have been here for every one of the weeks. Um, I pray that it has been an encouragement and a strengthening to your faith as we celebrate Christmas. And not just the surface level Christmas, but really define the Christ of Christmas. And so if you've missed any one of the series or the messages in the series so far, you can obviously go online. You can watch those there and catch up on those. But well, we've covered a lot of ground in four weeks. And we've talked in the first week about God with us. That the greatest gift, the real gift we really need in Christmas is God with us. Amen. That is the life-changing, eternity-changing gift that God has extended to us. And then we talked about the other weeks. We talked about a peace delivered. That Christ in his coming, because God is with us, because we have Emmanuel, we have a peace that's been delivered to us. We can pray for peace. I understand when we do that. We're praying for peace in a season But I want to encourage you, you already have all the peace you need in Christ. You have it. John 14, 27. You have the peace of God through the spirit of God, the comforter. So, yes, I understand you can pray in a season. Lord, give me peace in this season. But that standing of who God really is and who you are in Christ. And so we talked about that the people of God had hoped and longed for the coming Messiah for so long. For so long they hungered for it. But like we can be at times in our lives, our faith can wane. Our hope can kind of grow dim. And we start to question, is this really going to happen? Is it really what God said? Did I really understand the prophecy? Maybe I missed something. Maybe it's not really what I thought it was. And then Christ came. And we just sang in the song about that 400 year of silence where God spoke to no prophet. There was no messenger of God. All they had was the revealed Old Testament. The word of God given to them. And for 400 years they waited anxiously to see the Messiah. Is he finally going to come? And I love the way that song phrases that. It was broken by a baby's cry. That that night everything changed. And a hope that maybe waned, that maybe grew dim, was restored. And the people of God rejoiced in the reality of Christ's coming. And I pray that as we talked about that and we talked about how it affected those of the children of God in Israel, I pray that as you look back 2,000 years to the true story of Christmas, the fact that Christ really did come, he really was born of a virgin, he really did live a sinless life, he really did die on a cross, he really was buried, and he really did rise again. And he did all of that so that we could place our faith and trust in Christ as Savior, and he really will come again. And so as we look back and we can say, man, as their hope was restored, I pray that when we feel our hope starting to wane, starting to grow dim, that we go back to the Christmas story. And I know it's so familiar. If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard the Christmas story told all kinds of ways. Like there's literally no way someone could articulate the Christmas story without you going, yeah, I heard it. Yep, I've heard that take. Mm, Thought you were a creative preacher. Nope, heard that one too. But I pray that it's not just a familiar story. I pray it's not just like a story we've heard when we were kids, the fairy tales and things of that nature. I pray that it is so much more. And that when you read chapters like Luke chapter 2, which gets read every Christmas, I feel like. As you read that chapter, you don't just focus backward and go, that's great that he came. You focus forward and say, because he came and fulfilled that promise, I know he's going to fulfill his future promises as well. And I look forward with anticipation and anticipation of him coming again with excitement that he is alive and reigning and ruling in heaven. We talked about the fact that because God is with us, we have a peace delivered, a hope restored. And finally, this morning, we're going to talk about a love freely given. A love freely given. We're going to go to one of, if not the most popular Bible verse in all of God's word. John 3.16. John 3.16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, page 744, I believe, is where you're going to turn. And so John 3.16. And if you have it memorized, that's awesome. I'm going to ask you to turn there anyway. So John 3.16. I'll never forget when I was in Bible college, we used to do a speaking uh, tournament, kind of a thing, like a preaching tournament. 
and all the pastoral major kids would get together and we would do at the end of the semester of second semester, we would do this competition and it was named after one of the first presidents of the college. And so you would do it like in small settings and then you would advance to the next round and the next round and you end up, if you won the tournament, you'd be preaching in chapel. And so, uh, shocker to no one, I I did not win. That's fine. Um, but, um, that's okay. I was too good for them. Um, so I was just so above them. They didn't get what I was saying. That's what it was. Um, no, but I'll never forget. We were sitting in this and we'd go to these little classrooms and there's probably like, I don't know, six, six of us in there and we would take turns preaching. And there was like three judges in the back that would judge you or whatever. And then they would give you a little evaluation. And I'll never forget this kid got up and he went to quote John three sixteen, the most popular verse. We're seniors in Bible college. And he got up and he said, you know, and he's preaching about whatever. And I don't remember much else of what he said, but he said, you know, it's like the famous verse that we all know so well, John three sixteen, which says, and he froze and he could not remember for the life of him, John three sixteen, And it was awkward, but it was so funny. It was so funny. And we're just sitting there. We're like, <clears throat> and then we all afterwards told him, you know, we all do the same thing. We would all forget in that moment as well. And it's amazing how that happens. You, you know something so well until you get in front of a group of people and all of a sudden you don't know nothing. And I always loved the way Steve Proctor, I got to tease him about this a little bit. I always loved how Steve Proctor ran business meetings when he was a chairman of the board because he knows almost everybody's name in the church until he got in front of them. And then he would go, yeah, um, uh, uh, you know who you are. You, who are you? And I love that because that's how it is when you're up here sometimes. And so when you think about John 3.16, it's a familiar verse. We know it. We've memorized it. We've read it time and time again. But I want to read this this morning. And then we're going to unpack this love that was freely given to us because God is with us. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know at least it's true of me and in my own human nature that I can grow so accustomed to a verse and to a passage, as we've talked about in previous messages, that the truth can kind of start to grow dim. It can start to lose its, its fervency on my heart and in my mind. Lord, for some, this last four weeks, the story of Christmas has done that for them. They know the story. They know it well. They've seen all the plays, all the movies. They could quote the gospel accounts of what happened when and how, and they know the historical background. They know the cultural significance of all the different things that happened. But Lord, I pray that it's true with the the birth of Christ, that it would be new and fresh every single time we get before your word, that every time we're in your presence, we're so thankful for your coming. Lord, because it is in the coming of Christ that we have discovered the gospel of Christ. And as it's true with the birth of Christ, so it can be true with the gospel, where all of a sudden the simplicity of the gospel is lost on us. We've grown in our Christian faith to a point where we think we've outgrown the gospel. But Lord, as I've heard, even Alistair Begg, who is so wise in his ministry of many, many years and books and things that he's written. Lord, I love what he said, that every single day, every believer should preach the gospel to themselves. Because it is the gospel that we find our eternal life. It is the gospel that we find our identity. It is in the gospel that we find the love and the grace and the mercy that not only do we need to be saved to be forgiven of sins, but we need to sustain us through every single day of this life. And so father, as we have read this verse, I pray that spirit, you would affirm it in our hearts and minds. We would not just dismiss it as familiar, but we would engage your word by the working of your spirit. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done this morning already. And I pray that you'd continue to lead God and direct. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
This verse, John 3.16, is honestly one of the most well-known and well-loved verses in our world today. I don't know anyone who would read John 3.16 and not love that verse. I mean, there's, it, it's awesome what that verse says. That God loves us so much that he gave what? His only begotten son. Like if you struggle with your identity or who you are, or maybe you don't feel good enough, or your parents have rejected you, or your siblings have rejected you, or your spouse doesn't really appreciate you, whatever you're feeling, maybe you feel like, I just, I'm not good enough. Read John 3.16 and you'll instantly know that the God of all creation loved you so much that he gave his son for you. Like that's how valuable you are. Now, we don't take that and dismiss the fact that we also have sinned. We also need forgiveness. We understand those things. But that forgiveness is available because God loved you so much. And I fear that so many have read this verse and have dismissed it as familiar. So many love this verse. It summarizes for many how we see the life of Christ and his mission in coming 2,000 years ago. It's a great summary verse of the life of ministry of Christ. But this is why he came. In this chapter, we're going to find there's some other things that point to the mission and purpose of Christ. Because, however, many people have read this verse. Many people are familiar with this verse. It's been put on sports teams and, and different sporting events and all kinds of things that have been put on TV Many people know the verse, but many people have not taken time to read the whole chapter, to actually investigate what's really going on before and after this verse that's so well loved. I mean, when you read the entirety of chapter 3, you're going to discover the full scope of what God offers us through his love. And that's what I want to do this morning. We're not going to read the entire chapter, but I want to give you some, some enough of it that you can get an idea of what's going on here because there is something amazing that God offers us through the scope of his love. So first thing we must do is got to back up a little bit from verse 16 because we have to understand that this is actually all taking place, and many of you may know this, during a conversation. So this is a conversation that Jesus is having with someone. So back up to chapter 3, verse 1. And again, I know for some this is familiar, but let's just look at it together. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. So during a conversation, we read the most loved and well-known verse. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? It seems really weird for us from the, even think that's a possibility, but you got to remember what he started his kind of conversation with. What did he just say? We know you're from God because of the miracles you do. These great signs and wonders that we've seen. In John's gospel, chapter 2, we see the water turned into wine, which happens at a wedding. But there's also evidence that Jesus did other miracles that aren't recorded in John, chapter 2, that Nicodemus was aware of. And so for Nicodemus, this is an amazing little moment. we got to pause here. And again, I think we, we brush right by this. Nicodemus is actually considering the possibility that Jesus is so powerful that he could actually have someone be born a second time. Like, that's amazing to me that Nicodemus is like, I've seen what you've done. I've heard what you've done. Nothing is impossible for you. So you just said this. Could it be you're actually saying this? Like, I don't understand how that could even happen. But, but is that what you're saying, Lord? Like, what faith does Nicodemus have that Jesus throws this out and he goes, oh, okay, sure. That, you can do that. I'm always amazed by that because we have an entire book of the miracles and the workings of God. We have the Gospels which talk about all the amazing things that Jesus has done. And we can read them over and over again. And yet God starts to move in our life in a way we don't fully understand. And we actually say, God, are you sure? Can you really handle that, God? Man, Nicodemus says, Is that, if that's really what you want me to do, I mean, okay. 
Is that really what you're saying? He goes on to say this in verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it's this conversation that Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus how he can be born again. And he makes this statement, which is hugely crucial to our understanding, verse 16. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is only one way that we as human beings, we've been born of the flesh, we are in the flesh. There's only one way that we'll ever see the kingdom of God, and that is to be born again, to be born of the Spirit. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It goes on from there that Nicodemus, in trying to understand what Jesus was teaching him, Jesus actually uses an Old Testament story. You know, he talks about the wind, that you can't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind. He talks about an Old Testament story as well. This story is found in Numbers chapter 21. A key verse you want to jot down is verse 9. So Numbers 21 and verse 9. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but this is the reference to the story that Jesus is telling Nicodemus. We see him reference it in verse 14 of chapter 3. So John 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So in this conversation, Jesus is trying to get him to understand what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to, to experience a spiritual new birth? And as he's telling him these stories, this, this teaching, he's trying to elaborate or illustrate this and elaborate it with a story, an illustration from Numbers 21. Nicodemus being a Pharisee, he knew the law. He knew these stories. And so the minute Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, Nicodemus' mind would have went to Numbers 21 and he would have remembered the teaching and the point of that story. If you've never read it, you can go back and read it. Basic summary, people are, are bitten by this snake, that they're poisoned. And so God tells Moses to make a brass serpent and to hold it up in the air on a pole. And basically when they look at it, they'll be healed. It takes faith to look up and believe that God said, if you look at this, you'll be healed. So Nicodemus is already connecting, okay, this new birth is not something that's based in the physical. It's based in the spiritual. It's a spiritual rebirth or birthing. And it requires faith to be born again. I have to have faith to be born again. I have to look to the lifted up son of God, who is Jesus Christ. And John's gospel gives us the most detail about the crucifixion. And the Bible says that Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, is nailed to a cross. And he is lifted up for all to see. And all those who look to the Christ on the cross, to see him sacrifice for our sins, will be saved, forgiven, born again, healed, cleansed. This is the story that Jesus is using to elaborate to Nicodemus the importance of faith in being born again. goes on to read here in John 3 and verse 15. Let's continue. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is talking about uh, verse 14, looking up to the son that was lifted up. Verse 16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So this is all in a conversation. Again, remember, we've got to put it in the context of this conversation. And he tells this story, and Nicodemus is starting to get it. He's starting to understand, okay, I can't be born of the flesh. i got to be born of the spirit. It's not a physical rebirth. It's a spiritual rebirthing. And that takes place by faith. And that comes through a faith in seeing the lifted Son of God sacrificed for our sins, as he's going to discover at the end of Jesus' ministry, that that belief and faith in that reality will save me from perishing and grant me eternal life. And it's all wrapped up. It's all summarized in the love of God for me. That the love of God has ushered into me an opportunity to not perish, but have eternal life. To not have to go through this, this dark eternity, but to have eternal life with the Savior, with God. This is the idea that Jesus is teaching to Nicodemus. And in verse 17, we discover even the fuller picture of Christ's 
purpose in coming. Christ came so that those in the world might be saved. God sent forth his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Moody commentary explains it this way, and I like this. We read that Jesus was sent by the Father, a concept found about 40 times in the Gospel of John. Being sent by the Father marks out mission as a central focus of Christ. Jesus was sent by the Father for one purpose, to glorify the Father by giving himself as a sacrifice for the sins of you and I. And that anyone who lifts up and looks to the risen Savior can be saved. But it's amazing to me how many people just keep their head down. You offer them eternal life. You offer them the forgiveness of sins. And all they got to do is just believe. Just put faith in this. And they'll put their head down. Deny, reject, and go about their way. Refusing to see what is offered through the love that is freely given in Christ. You see, Christ came and offers a love freely given, which is by definition more than a religious experience. More than a religious experience. It's a real belief in Christ by faith. It's a real belief in Christ by faith. A few years ago, and some of you may remember this if you were here then, I think it might have been one of my first years as the pastor of the church. I started pastoring as senior pastor in 2012. It might have been right around 12 or 13. And I did this illustration that I'm pretty sure scared most of our church, especially the older crowd, and probably almost cost me my job. But I figured I was only the pastor for a short time, a year or so. So if they're going to fire me, you might as well do it early get it out of the way, and, but if you can get through that and they don't fire you, then you know you're good to do pretty much whatever. So it was kind of a good you know, watermark for that to see where we were at. But I, I did this illustration, and I saw another speaker do this, and I thought it was just awesome. And so uh, I had a balloon, and I put a balloon on the wall over there, and I just taped it to the wall. So when everybody came in, there was just a yellow balloon over there. And I asked people that, you know, do you see the balloon? Yeah, we see the balloon. And then I I may have pulled out a pellet rifle and I may have put a, an actual pellet in the rifle and I may have pumped up the rifle a few times. And I asked the people in the church, I said, how many of you think that if I stood right about here, I could hit that balloon with one shot and pop the balloon? And so quite a few hands went up and people were like, yeah, I think you could do that. And so I pumped the, air, the, the pellet rifle one more time. And I took aim at the balloon. And at this point, there were some older people in the back row that literally said, don't let him do that. Go stop him. That is not an exaggeration. Somebody sitting near them said, this woman was hitting her husband on the arm saying, go stop him. Don't let him fire that, that pellet rifle in the church. Now, I don't know if she had lack of faith in my shot or if she thought I was going to hit the wall or what. And so I, I take aim and I'm ready to go. And I said, how about this? How many of you believe so deeply in my ability to hit that balloon in the first shot that you're willing to come up here and hold it in your fingers. And a few people raised their hand, believe it or not. I thought no one's going to raise their hand. A few people raised their hand. And then I said, okay, how about this? How many of you would be willing to come up here and hold the balloon in between your teeth and let me take a shot at it? I'm not kidding you. Two people raised their hand. And I said, okay. And I knew the one person was a little more daring, a little more able to get up here. So I said, all right. And I called this guy out and I, his name was Matt. And I said, Matt, come on up. So Matt came up. And at this point, I'm still running through my mind. How far are we going to take this? Like, what are we going to do? So he gets up here and I had a little like fake waiver liability thing made up. And we, we pretended like he was signing it or whatever. And I said, sign this. And he, he has no idea. I've not told him anything. He's just coming up here. And I hand him the balloon and he puts it in his teeth and he goes and stands over there. And he's just like this, ready for me to take a shot. So I, I take aim. And now just so you guys know, I wasn't really going to pull the trigger, but I'm not going to lie. 
for a second, when I picked up the rifle, I thought, I could hit that balloon. I could, I could do it. I bet I could do it. Now, I didn't actually pull the trigger, because I think if I pulled the trigger, this church probably would have been named after him, because he would have probably, you know, sued as a whole thing. Now, it's no longer North Carolina Baptist, like the Church of Matt or whatever. And so, so I thanked him for coming up and stuff, and he went and sat down. Everybody had a good laugh about it and all that stuff. But the whole point of the illustration is simply this. How many people actually, literally believed in the congregation? And you might say, well, I, I mean, the, those people that believed you can hit the balloon on the wall believed. Well, yeah, but the minute it got a little bit tougher, a little more costly, the belief started to go down. So the question is, who really believed in what I was asking? And if we're being honest, this is really similar to what we talk about when we say belief in Christ. It's really easy to raise a hand and to say, yeah, sure, I believe when we think it costs us nothing. It's really easy to say a little prayer. To say the right words, to repeat a prayer after someone else because, well, we just don't want to go to hell because that's a scary place. But based on God's word, it seems like belief, according to what the scripture lays forth, is not some half-hearted, throw my hand up, I'll say a prayer, sure, whatever. I'll try Jesus. I've tried everything else. Maybe Jesus will work. Finances didn't work. Career didn't work. Ah, sure, I'll try Jesus, whatever. Maybe he'll give me what I want. So I'll, I'll say a little prayer. Man, that's not the belief we read of in scripture. Man, the belief we read in scripture is they say, I'll put this thing between my teeth. I'll live this out. I'll lay my life down for Jesus. I don't care if it costs me everything. I believe. And I think there's a lot of people sitting in churches week after week after week that have had religious experiences, emotional experiences. But I don't know, and I, I'm thankful I don't need to know because it's God's decision and God's the judge. But I guess I would say I would question how many people sitting in church this morning all across our country are truly believers in Christ? Or do they just have a religious experience somewhere, an emotional moment? Yeah, I said this quick little prayer. I mean, Jesus in the Gospels, he says things like, when you say you want to follow Christ, and then you say, well, I got to go to my father's funeral tomorrow. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Well, yeah, but I just bought this plot of land and I need to go see to this land and then I'll come follow you. No, you won't actually follow me. I mean, see, Jesus lays it out there that if you really believe, you're going to lay everything down for him. And then this is where in the church today, this is what we've done to get away from this. We're so clever in the modern church. See, Jesus actually said those things. You can go back and read it. I believe it's Luke chapter 9. I think it's the end of Luke 9 that he talks about that. You can like read it for yourself. Jesus' words, not my words, his words. And then what we've done in the church is, we go, no, no, that's a, that's a discipleship verse, pastor. That's just a discipleship verse. That's not a salvation verse. And we've isolated these passages and we've said, there's some verses that only apply to Christians that want to be a disciple. And then there's verses to Christians that want to just be a Christian. And the hard thing I'm coming against in scripture is I don't see that distinction in this book. I don't see where you can go, I'm a Christian, but not a disciple. The, the Bible seems to suggest, I don't know, Jesus seems to suggest, if you declare yourself a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, a Christian, it's all the same thing. We cannot say to God, I want to be your son. I want to be saved by your grace, but I don't want to be a follower of Christ. See, it's more than a religious experience. It's a belief in faith in Christ, which may cause us to risk some, some things in this life. It may cause us to lay down our wants, our comforts, our concerns, our fears. I heard David Platt say one time, and I loved it, that, that as a follower of Christ, your safety is no longer your concern. Because if God calls, God will equip and God will see that he takes care of you. You don't need to fear where God may lead you because you're following your savior. 
And so if he leads you over here, he knows he's going to lead you there. He's already prepared you for over there. And he's already got everything you need for over there. So you just go. You see, so many have had religious experiences. But have we truly experienced real belief in Christ by faith? Have we placed our faith and trust in Christ? It's easy to raise a hand or say a quick prayer. But are you willing to lay your life out there for Jesus? Notice that the word believe in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. Notice that with the word believe is the little preposition in. Which means to believe in Christ. J. Vernon McGee says it this way. That is, we trust him as the one who bore the penalty for our sins. This is a personal thing. I love that. This is a personal thing. It's not a religious experience. It's not an emotional experience. Although, yes, there's emotion attached to it. And praise God for that. There's nothing wrong with emotion. But it's not emotion first. It's faith. It's belief. It's trusting in Christ. It's believing that he really is who he says he is. And with that belief comes emotion. And praise God for those expressions of emotion through tears or sorrow or joy or whatever it may be. But primarily, it is belief in Christ apart from emotion. You see, it's a real belief in Christ by faith. It's also, according to this passage, it's being born again by faith. Jesus was born of a virgin so that we might be born of the Spirit. Jesus was born of a virgin so that we might be born of the Spirit. John tells us a vital part of being born again is that Jesus must be lifted up, as we alluded to already. Jesus was lifted up before us on the cross as well. He will be lifted up as the spotless Lamb of God that God has exalted, and one day all will bow before him. You see, we see him lifted up on the cross, and then we see him lifted up as a risen Savior. But one day, God will lift him up before all of us. And even those outside of Christ will bow and identify that he is Lord. Not unto salvation, but unto recognition and adoration, and yet still in their sin because they chose to deny him. See, we lift up Christ every single day as followers of Christ in preparation for the day that we will see him lifted up for all the world to praise him. You can jot down a verse, a reference here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 is a reference to that idea of being exalted, that he will be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You see, it's about being born again by faith. God's love provided a way of salvation. God's love is not what saves us. It is the grace of God that saves us, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But it is the love of God that provides the grace of God. It is not the love of God that saves us. The love of God merely extended to us the grace of God through Christ that now we can receive and be saved. When we realize the grace that was and is extended to us by his love and receive it, being born again as a son and daughter of God, as we spoke about in week one, Nothing is off limits for Christ. We are completely his. When I truly understand the love that was extended from the father to me, and in that love was grace given that I could receive grace and the forgiveness of sins. And I am now his son or daughter. What in the world could I possibly tell him is not his. That is mine. It's all his. It's all his because by faith, I have to identify, I have nothing to offer. You have given me everything. So my life is yours. I lay it down for you. And if you're like me, that is a decision we have to make every single day. Uh, Every single hour. Every single minute. Sometimes you enter a conversation, you entered laying your life down for the Lord. And during the conversation, you're praying, Lord, help me to keep doing this. Because my flesh want to say some things right now. I want to act in a way that isn't pleasing to you. This person's driving me a little crazy, Lord. But let me lay my life down for you, Lord, that I would continue to express that love and grace that you've given to me, to these individuals. 
however it is that God is leading you, what is it in your life right now? If you're being honest, just be real with him. That's all we're asking. Just be real with God to say, God, I've been holding this back. I've been telling you it's not yours, but you know what, Lord? You've given everything to me, a love freely given to me that extends grace to me. So I'm going to lay my life down for you, Lord. And that includes this area, which I've been holding back. Whatever it is for you, would you surrender that to him? We are brand new creations in Christ because we have been born again by faith. Everything is new. Everything is new, just as it is for a newborn baby. Now, many of you have had children or grandchildren. Now, if you're honest, from what I've heard, being a grandparent is much more fun than being a parent. Because as as a parent, the kid goes home with you. As a grandparent, the kid goes home with somebody else. So you can sugar them up, get them all crazy and go, here you go. That's why God, I I do believe God is a God of vengeance because he gives grandparents that opportunity. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm just kidding, but sort of kidding. Not really, kind of. But one of the coolest things about having a baby or having a child or being even around them when they're newborn like that is watching them experience everything for the very first time. There's nothing cooler than that. And it's amazing when you get around little ones, even as they start to grow and months go by, they're still so interested in everything. If you ever watch a little one, they'll stare at everything. What is that? What is that? They're just so inquisitive and so just wanting to know more. And everything is new. So like, my children were born two different times of the year. Anthony was born in the summer. Josiah was born in November. And so, you know, first winter with Josiah was interesting. It was fun because he's only, you know, I mean, a couple weeks old and we take him outside and we plop him down in the snow. And not because he wants to be in the snow, because I just want to see what he's going to (laughs) do. Children are awesome. It's like a living experiment. You can just keep messing around with. It's awesome. So we plop him in the snow and we take his gloves off and we took his hand and we put it in the snow on purpose. And he instantly just yanked his hand up out of the snow and looked at his hand. What is that? Why is that cold? That shouldn't, what is is this stuff on my hand now? And I love that because as they experience these new things, you get to enjoy that with them and kind of journey with them. And the reality is it's just like that for you and I in Christ. As we experience this new birth, man, everything is new. Prayer is all of a sudden, we may have prayed before or prayed with other people or been around people when they prayed, but now it's different because you have a relationship with the one you're praying to. It's not this religious experience. It's an intimate conversation with your heavenly father. Going to church is altogether different. And this is where I think, again, man, we got to get back to the reality of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? When I, if I wasn't saved, if I wasn't a believer, I would not come here. I would want nothing to do with this place. I'd be doing my own thing in my own way. I don't want someone telling me what to do. I, I'm my own boss. But as a follower of Christ, from when I went to church before I was saved, hated it, didn't enjoy it at all, wanted to get out of there as soon as I could, only went because there was a couple girls in the youth group, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, happens, Okay. But then at 16, I came to know Christ. And all of a sudden, church was not something I had to go to. Man, I just wanted to be there. And I always go back to, I think back to when we were at the old building. We didn't have a youth group per se. We just did like a Sunday morning youth group. We didn't have a Wednesday night youth group like we do now. And I remember our Wednesday night service was in the old building. We would go. There'd be like a 50-minute sermon. And then we would do some prayer. And people are just sharing prayer requests. And I always, I was amazed. In the second row would be the youth group row. And we were sitting there and these kids are 16, 15, 17 years old. And it was not entertaining in the sense of what you would think. Okay, students need this and students need this and this and this. And there were some of us that just loved being there. It didn't matter what songs we were singing. It didn't matter who was doing what. We just wanted to be there, be with God's people before God's word. And it was so It was so encouraging to see other people like that. Now, there are times in my Christian life, if we're being honest, where you don't feel like it. You don't feel like going. Stuff's going on. Life's busy. Life's crazy. I understand. 
But my question to you is, is there a desire? I'm not saying do you struggle because we all do. We all have moments where we don't feel like it. But is there a desire within you that says, I just want to be with God's people? Yeah, I don't really feel like it. But Lord, because I've surrendered everything to you, I'm going to go because I just want to be with your people. I want to be before your word. You see, going to church outside of Christ is a chore. It's something we have to do with family at certain times of the year and for holidays. But man, in Christ, there is no greater pleasure than gathering with God's people and lifting up the name of Christ. See, everything is new. Everything is different when we're born again. We can enjoy this life. Not only things that we connect to church or to the Christian life, uh, things like prayer and going to church and reading the Bible, those things that we say are part of just being a Christian. I believe we can experience everything in life in a new way. Uh, Just the beauty of creation. Yesterday, exchanging gifts. As a Christian, you give a gift, and it's amazing. There's no expectation of what you're getting back in return. I don't give Sandra a gift, so she'll give me a gift, like this awesome Michigan shirt, okay? Just again, just going to point that out there, right there, okay? We don't do that as believers, right? I don't give my gifts gifts to my children because I hope that they'll love me in return. I don't give gifts to my children so they'll go, wow, this must have been really expensive. Dad really loves me. No, that's how the world gives gifts. That's what the world thinks. The world tells you, husbands, get your wives gifts so they won't be mad at you. What silliness is that? How shallow and superficial is that? Is marriage a contractual agreement we enter into just trying to keep each other happy until we die? Or is it a sacred covenant before God that when we as husbands love our wives as Christ loved the church and those that we are married to can see that love and respond and we can live in this beautiful union as it's supposed to be. Not this idea of, well, I do this for my wife so she doesn't get mad at me or I do this for my husband so he doesn't get mad at me. Don't let the culture influence your marriage that way. Don't let the world dictate to you how you give gifts and receive gifts. As a follower of Christ, we give gifts as a response to the gift we've received. And that's the word for grace, that idea of giving this gift to us. We've been given this beautiful gift of grace, and so we give gifts. So it's not just the things that we attach to church that we can experience and enjoy in new ways. It's everything in our lives. You see, there was a love that was freely given, and that love invites us into a relationship that by faith, in belief in Christ, we can be born again by faith. And we have this new life, this new journey that we're on. The love that he gives is wonderful. And provides the saving grace we all desperately need. But we have to pause. And we got to look at the text in its entirety. And this is where so many fall short. What about those who don't believe? What about those who aren't born again? What about those who reject this love that was freely given? Those that refuse to step out by faith. Are they given a second chance? Would God give them a second chance in eternity? Can they work their way to God after death by the prayers and good works of those left behind? Can a family member pray someone that didn't believe, that wasn't born again, into heaven? Jesus reveals the answer in John chapter 3 and verse 18. And as only Jesus could, in a simple summary format, he gives us the answer. He that believeth on him, on Christ, is not condemned, praise God. And if you've believed on Christ by faith, you are not condemned. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free from all sin, praise God. Verse 18, it continues. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Whoever believes not this side of heaven has made their decision. And I'm so thankful that Jesus said this because it's not me, it's Jesus. So if you're sitting there like, I don't like that, I don't think that's right, I don't think that's true, that's fine, take it up with Jesus. It wasn't my words, it was his words. He says, anyone who does not believe is condemned already. They're already condemned. If they've hardened their heart and rejected Christ and said no, then they're condemned. 
They've made their decision. One author said it this way. The future judgment merely confirms, not determines, one's eternal destiny. The future judgment merely confirms, not determines, one's eternal destiny. The decision was made before they left this world. And so the reality is this verse that we all love so much and so familiar to us tells us of his great love for us, but it also warns us that there are those who may not believe and the result will be condemnation. And so what do we do with this? Well, I think first of all, we're so thankful that God has given us breath in our lungs right now. Because here's the beauty of this. The Bible says that until our very last breath, we have an opportunity for repentance. And we can turn and we can trust in Christ. And so if you're here this morning or watching online, if you don't know Christ, I'm not asking if you went to church, had a religious experience, said a prayer, attended a Bible study, whatever. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you believe to the point of saying, no, I will give everything for him because I believe that he is Savior. I believe that I've sinned and broken his law and I confess my sins and I receive this free gift of salvation. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I put my faith and trust in him and him alone. Not in church, not in good deeds, not in feel goods, but in him. And I do that of my own choosing. And I'm so thankful he gives me the grace to do that, to make that choice. But if that's you, then, then you know Christ. And you can know Christ. And you can grow in that relationship with him. But if you don't know Christ, if you've never done that, then today, the Bible says, can be the day of salvation. Maybe you would put your faith and trust in him. Let's be thankful that we have breath in our lungs today, that we can make a decision that will radically change our eternity, that we can turn from our sin and trust in him in repentance. See, believing in him is not just some act of the will just to believe. It also requires this word repentance, to turn, to realize that I've done sinful things and I need to turn from those things and surrender to him, if we make that choice by his grace, we can be born again and everything is new and wonderful. Would you pray? Father, we come before you today and we are so thankful for your word. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room has made a decision to believe, to place their faith and trust in you, the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I, I don't know the hearts of those that are here, but you do. And Father, I also know your word says that there will be those that stand before you that will hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you. And yet, Lord, their response is, but we knew you. We, we did all these things in your name. But Lord, I pray that we would know that it's not about just knowing about you or knowing the terminology, being familiar with some verses, knowing the, the ritual and the format of sitting through a church service and what to do when, to know all the the Christian sayings and the responses we're supposed to give. But Lord, I pray that it is a true faith, a belief. Now, Lord, we know we all struggle. There's no perfect faith. We all have doubts and questions, and, and that's encouraged and welcome to be brought before your throne. But Father, I pray that even in spite of those unbelief moments that we all have, that we would have a desire of our hearts to believe, to trust, and to say, Lord, I, I believe you can do all things, but help my unbelief. And so, Father, for the believers here today that know you as their Savior, I pray that we would enjoy every single moment before your throne, whether it be in a church service, in Bible study, in personal reading and prayer, or just living, as we would call it, the everyday life because we can enjoy everything in this world for your glory. For whatsoever we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all for your glory. But Father, I pray that it wouldn't stop there. 
that we would realize that your love that was freely given offers a grace to all peoples. And so I pray that if we truly believe John 3.16 and the surrounding verses, that it would motivate us and encourage us to share it with others. Not just a feel-good story, but the truth of the gospel, that anyone who believes will be born again with eternal life. But Lord, those that will not believe are condemned already. And that condemnation will lead to a place called hell. And so Lord, if we believe that, now if we truly believe your word, I don't see how we can't be motivated to share the truth of the gospel with those around us. So fathers, we go into 2022. I pray that we're motivated to revive our faith or rather, Lord, allow you to revive our faith, revive our relationship with you, a newness of our faith, be fresh and new, and we would be excited for what you're going to do. Father, we praise you for your goodness, for your love and your grace, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we're led in a song of invitation? Would you come and respond, whether there in your seats or here at the altar? Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him? If you know Christ, maybe you'd come and praise him for his love and his grace. Or maybe you'd come and pray for someone you know that doesn't know Christ, that you'd give them that gospel message in the coming weeks. Whatever God is doing, would you respond?